Hello and welcome to the Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely. In a world given back to us, this is Wade here in the studio with Mike as we are continuing our Winging It series on the life of Luther. And we are into the 1520s. We've been there for a while. And uh, Mike, I'm starting to get the impression we might be here for a while in the 1520s. But we hope you're enjoying it. And um, if you are, that you're following along. I know uh, others have done series on similar things, and they've managed to do it in maybe like six, seven, eight episodes. But maybe now is a good time uh, for a reminder to you as listeners of what we are doing here. What we're really hoping is to provide a resource that over time, uh, maybe people are listening through with the series now, but also if someone's looking at some point um, for more information on any of these, um, to be going a little bit more in depth into individual episodes or individual people, events or places in Luther's life or important for his thought, uh, to be able to do so a little bit more deeply. You know, we're aiming for usually half hour to 45 minutes on these. And so you may look and say, wow, they're really going at a slow pace. But the hope is to hopefully have a resource that stands up pretty well. We did a similar thing with the liturgy. And I have to say, Mike, that's one of the... Uh, out of all we've done, one of the things I get the most comments about when I'm out and presenting, I was just down in Florida again, and that came up with people, um, to, to be able to go a little bit more depth on specific things. And it's just hard to do that if you say, okay, we're going to do Luther in the 1520s now. Um, it's a big picture. It's a big jump. And individual writings, individual people, places, events get lost. <clears throat> and so that's why we're going at the pace we are. Also, we, also, you know, what we could do is we could get some enterprising young student here to put the audio to like pictures. And then when we teach this course, we could go in there and press play and just take naps because we'll have like 50 hours. Well, And I will say, I think probably both of us, Mike are going to find ourselves um, pointing students to this resource. I know it's something that I have done and um, probably will um, give students the opportunity for extra credit to engage with some of these and write um, you know, summaries or reviews of them. So there is some selfishness in that as well. <laughs> or at least we could in the future. Yeah, yeah. and so I think uh, hopefully that helps you bear with us a little bit. But I do have to say that it's been, I'm say, that's my new phrase today, I do have to say. It's been beneficial for me too because it is an opportunity for us before these to engage with these um, resources or, or time periods or... Um, events or people individually uh, and to I guess for, just from my own understanding it's 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 helpful so we plan to continue at the pace we're on and the good thing is it's not one mic that I really see flaming out because it's something we both have to engage with professionally mm -hmm. for work although uh, <clears throat> for those who depending on when this comes out it may come out after I've had to make a decision I am holding a call to a parish in uh, Gibsonia, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. So if I do leave, we might have to figure this out by Skype, Mike, or you might be doing a, like some of those really good podcasts where it's just an individual voice uh, <laughs> talking about things you may have to write out. Uh, I think I think we probably just would quit and I'd just be done. Well, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, well, that seems to be up to you. Yeah, I don't want to distract our readers or our listeners here, but my levels are they're showing up, Mike. Yep, you're good. Okay, I think it's just the feed into my headphone that is a little bit off because I'm not hearing you through that, but I can hear you above and beyond the headphone. So if I'm a little slow on stuff, uh, I apologize, and you'll know why. We'll 
before we record next, uh, tinker with That's that true. a little bit. But as long, the levels are on the Zoom for yep, both of us. Yeah, we're good to go. Okay. Well, with all of that as a preface, then, we have lately been looking at kind of the tensions that arise. Luther has um, made his good confession from our perspective as Lutherans at Worms. He has been at the Wittenberg, and stuff has been happening in Wittenberg. It's not as if uh, life just stops for people, and there are people who continue to want to push reform, both Luther's colleagues, but also people who have come from outside of the area. So we recorded what I think is one of my favorite winging it sessions we've done so far uh, on the Zwickau Prophets not long ago. I think that came out last week. And you have tensions within Wittenberg, but also people who are looking to Wittenberg um, and finding inspiration, but not necessarily taking things where Luther would have wanted it taken. And so you have these Vigal prophets who come from outside and maybe expect to um, to find allies in Wittenberg. Um, you have Karlstadt, who is pushing reform at a very quick pace. Uh, and you have Melanchthon, who's just nervous and not comfortable with what's happening, but he's understandably, as a young man, a new member, um, newish member of the faculty in Wittenberg, um, he's writing to Luther, you know, what should we be doing about this? I think it's fair to say Mike Luther is increasingly uncomfortable at the Wartburg, not only because it's not kind of his kind of place, but he's worried about what's going on um, back home. So he is corresponding in this time as well. And we begin to see... um, the tensions uh, that will arise about what the implications of theological reform should be, both societally and politically, but also um, the the Lutheran Reformation, and it's anachronistic to speak of it as a thing like that at that time. But it's going to have to decide, is it going to be radical? Is it going to be conservative and not conservative like a Republican, Democrat? Um, but is it... Is it going to retain a lot of the traditional? Or is it going to go kind of in between those things, kind of like the Swiss will do? And uh, and so Luther is going to, at this time with his response, kind of set the pace for all that will follow and really um, set things on a route that will be what uh, Charles Porterfield Krauth calls the conservative reformation. Once again, not meaning... Um, like liberal conservative in America, um, but that the Lutheran Reformation is definitely going to be a thing different than what the radical Reformation reformers would want or what the Swiss are doing. Yeah, they're not going to throw everything out just to throw it out. And and I think, you know, Luther lights the match, and that's can be fairly easy, even though it takes a lot of bravery. Um, but then how do you control the fire? Right. Right. I mean, there's de- literal decisions that have to be made. What do you do with monks and nuns? Should they get married now? Um, what are you going to do with the, the mass? Are you going to change the actual uh, um, change the actual liturgy? And then the third player, of course, in there is the political realm, specifically Frederick the Great, who uh, Luther's going to back sometimes, but also defy sometimes, right? You mean Frederick I, the Wise? Frederick the Wise, excuse me. Frederick the Wise is going to say, you can't just let this go unchecked, right? And so he is going to push back in certain places, and you know it's it's you know it's easy to start a uh, a revolution. It's harder to maintain the maintain the uh, the country afterwards. And a lot of this is going to hit on, and this is important to remember too. Um, when we talk about 
history and what professional historians do. Um, my training is especially as an intellectual historian because I want to be um, as unemployable as possible. Mm -hmm. And so um, intellectual historians focus on big thoughts over time, uh, oftentimes put uh, forth by what historically has been called great men. Uh, you know, what are the, the big thoughts and how do they shape things? But there's other um, uh, ways of doing history that are very important and have rightfully grown in importance, although um, some of them have been a bit taken over by um, perhaps political and cultural agendas. Um, but social, social history, cultural history, um, the history I do tends to look uh, from the top down, although I try to stay abreast of stuff in cultural and social history as well. But there's a lot of branches that, of history that will look at things from the bottom up, right? How do these things actually hit the common people? Luther may be saying one thing, what did the common people believe? And something that's interesting about this period is it's really a struggle about the life experiences of the common people. What do they see when they go to church on Sunday? What do they hear? And not just what do they see as in um, who's the priest or the pastor, but how is the church decorated? Um, where are they sitting? Uh, stuff like that. What does the, the mass or the divine service look like? What are they receiving when they go up for communion? And uh, and so this really gets into the, the daily life and experience of the common people. And I think this is where, in my opinion, and I think you agree, Mike, as, as Lutherans, probably most Lutherans agree, Luther's um, brilliance intact comes through. And so we're going to be focusing especially today, even though it took us 10 minutes to get there, on Luther's Invocavit sermons. Luther is going to return from the Wartburg to Wittenberg. He's going to give the elector, um, Frederick the Wise, a head, heads up that he's coming. And I think here, Mike, as I mentioned before we started recording, um, if you can do a little bit of the heavy lifting for us when it comes to summarizing A, how he frames his return, whether that be to Frederick or others, why does he feel compelled to return? Um, it's probably not just because the Wartburg uh, isn't his cup of tea. But then B, what's the general, we're not going to go through each Invocavit sermon, but what's the general thrust of them? What's the big points he makes? And just um, by way of reference to when we say Invocavit sermons, um, what we mean is that these sermons began, um, or they span from the, uh, the 9th of March throughout that week, um, which is three days after his uh, return, and they begin on Invocavit Sunday in the church year. Um, that's just the title for that Sunday. And to have daily preaching in Lent was not out of the norm. To have that become topical preaching in Lent was not out of the norm. Um, but what Luther addresses in those sermons will be very important. So what we mean is a series of sermons um, that fall during this Invocavit uh, week of the the church year. Is that right, Mike? Mm -hmm. And then maybe you can give us the the summaries of what I talked about. Well, certainly, I'm going to just add a few things. So uh, he's going to come, uh, he's going to return in the spring of 1522, but uh, there's some stuff going on before that. So in August of 1521, you had some monks that were, let's say, breaking their vows and getting married. And Melanchthon and Karlstadt, probably the two most famous and most important leaders uh, um, with Luther absent in, in Wittenberg, okay this and say this is great and luther of course is for uh you know not 
you know, not holding to celibacy in an unnecessary way or forcing that upon people. But he pumps the brakes a little bit. So we already see a little bit of Luther pumping the brakes on some of these radical Reformation movements that apply to everyday life. He said he struggles with you still made a promise. So first of all, if you had if you were forced into a celibate life when you were like 13, obviously that's a false vow, you know, break it. No, no uh, guilt on your conscience at all. Um, But but it's another thing for an adult to go against their word. And so he, he struggles with that a little bit. He's eventually to come down on, I think, you know, Melanchthon and Carl Stott's side, but you, you see that issue, even though it's not a huge theological issue compared to, um, things with the icons, iconoclasm and, uh, communion in, in both kinds, but you see how that's going to get played out. And, and the third party, then Frederick, the wise is going to come back into that too, he's worried about these cultural societal issues as well. And so we see a pattern that's coming. In December of 1521, he, he returns to visit friends. Uh, he kind of does a little bit clandestinely. He sees Melanchthon, he sees Lucas Cronick, a couple others. Um, and during that month, there is some actual anti-clerical violence, like because some of the priests were pushing back a little bit on the things Karlstadt was, was doing, and Frederick wanted things to move a little bit slower and and Mike not, not to interrupt but to interrupt briefly his his first visit if I recall he's not totally unpleased with everything no. happening and it's a little more peaceful and he actually yep. if I remember now correct me he leaves probably with more of a positive view than a negative yeah that's the that's the way I read it as well um, but in that month there is some I mean we're talking about the townspeople you know going to say, uh, even, uh, threatening to kill the monks, you know, they got their daggers out and stuff like that. And we've all done that once or twice, right. but it was becoming more regular. Than that. <laughs> and so he's, and then he, he tamps that down late in December. He is going to say, hold on, don't, don't do that. Um, you know, if you actually, people who actually listened to my words and read my writings would not be violent, would not be rebels. And so he, he does tamp that down, um, a little bit coming in December too, is going to be that evangelical mass that Karlstadt really wants to wants to hold. So in German, in the vernacular, um, no vestments, um, communion in both kinds, um, some things that are moving in the right direction. And it doesn't seem well, like... I don't know that we would say n- not no everything, vestments, but... Right. Not everything uh, is is probably where, where Luther and Lutherans are going to fall. But he's for this, generally speaking, okay. Frederick does not want this to happen, and Karlstadt goes with it anyway, right? And then you start getting Munster's going to show up, and you have Gabriel Zwilling, who is going to be kind of around, and so things start to get a little bit, a little bit more complicated. Gabriel Zwilling, Gabe. You know, I don't know. Maybe I that's wonder who if Peter named his son. I was going to say if the Peter, like, because Zwilling. By the way, you know what Gabe did again in church this Sunday? What did he do? It's a classic Gabe move. <laughs> Gabe comes into church after the absolution again. <laughs> so, I mean, he well, clearly... He's, he's not at the age of accountability yet. Well, but he clearly doesn't have respect for the absolution. But then he goes up to communion, and he's grabbing at, at poor pastor like he should take communion, yeah. not even having been absolved. Well, that's that's Gabriel's willing. It's, yeah, yeah, and it's... Um, I wonder if Peter and Amy named him after Gabriel's willing because they're like, 
Well, if you name him like Luther, that would be like too much pressure. Right. I mean, because Zwilling ends up kind of calming down and yeah, he's not guy. like Munster. He's, right. but, he, but he's average. He's feisty, though. He's feisty, but he's average, right. you know? He's not Munster, but he's not Luther. And so you're like, you know what? The kid's going to be average. Yeah. And he, I mean, there's a little rebel there. During the sermon, I have to say, he got um, a little boisterous at one part. And as they sit in front of us. Law uh, gospel part. was during it, it, it clearly took away from my experience of the sermon. Um, but I will forgive him of that. I doubt he cares if I forgive him since he doesn't care about the absolution. But I just, the Gabe thing, I mean, maybe it would make sense. It would be a Peter move to name to him name after his villain. Fairly obscure. Yeah. Carl yeah. Stock gets married too. And so he's pushing, uh, pushing the envelope too. And then uh, in March 1st, Luther decides to leave. Frederick does not want this to happen because uh, he wants Luther still protected. He's thinking like the protector that he is. And well, Lu- and it does, uh, Luther's an outlaw. Yep. It does complicate things politically to have Luther back in the open in Wittenberg. And so it seems he makes his case for coming back. Um, you know, one of the reasons why... Um, is that he really considers himself a pastor in in Wittenberg. And these are my people, and I'm called to do that, and I need to go back there. Um, He does see Satan being involved um, in in Wittenberg um, and maybe even taking the Reformation too far, perhaps. Um, And then he also feared a rebellion, and so I think this probably is one that would have hit home with Frederick the Wise. Like, if we have this unchecked rebellion... Um, who's just, what's to say that God is not going to bring down wrath upon the German people. And so he makes his case for leaving March 1st. He arrives in Wittenberg March 6th. And like you said, he's already in the pulpit um, by the 8th, 8th or 9th, uh, the 9th. And he preaches uh, eight sermons, the Invocabit sermons. Um, do you want to add something now or do you want me to go into just a quick summary of those sermons. No, maybe just um, one thing that I thought was helpful from Brecht, uh, Martin Brecht has his three-volume vol- three series uh, on the the life of Luther. And he is going to say that from this point on, um, around this time period, uh, one of the big things that develops, uh, maybe I'll just read it. He says, uh, and this is on page 57 in the second volume, uh, Martin Luther Shaping and Defining the Reformation, During the next two years, Luther usually identified himself and in titles of his publications as the ecclesiast, um, the preacher at Wittenberg. To be sure, he had occupied the position of preacher at the city church since 1514, but now more than ever, he considered it his proper office. He did not assume his activity as a professor until the summer of 1524, ostensibly because of his task of translating the Bible, but political reasons very probably also played a role in this, as someone under the ban he refrained from pursuing the public teaching office. And so um, I just thought that stood out as it is important for Luther too uh, in that he sees himself um, during this time primarily as preacher. Um, But I would say he begins to see his role as a human being in the world um, largely as as preacher solidified during this time too. And so he's concerned about the people. I mean, I, Hendricks makes that point too. He's concerned about his post in, in Wittenberg, um, not necessarily, um, it, certainly he knows this, but not necessarily as this ref, 
Reformation leader that someday people are going to write books about, right? He has a call, he has his vocation, and he wants to do that. And, and I'd imagine in the in the Warburg that there is a little bit of not guilt, but like I should be I I should be at my post, right? So he has these uh, um, series of sermons, and he really does kind of lay out this is how the Reformation in in Wittenberg, not that he necessarily used that word, should kind of be play out. And so he says, there's some things that are optional. And so we should not make what is free into a must either way. So uh, clerical celibacy, monastic vows, the use of sacred statues and images, fasting and private confession. And so those five things, um, you don't make a must that you have to do them, but you don't make them a must that you cannot do them too. And then we probably add communion in both kinds um, with uh, the laity uh, receiving bread and wine, uh, both body and blood. That's obviously the goal. That's how God instituted it. Um, I remember in college, a, a professor saying that if you only took it in one kind, you actually didn't get forgiveness of sins and it was no longer a sacrament. And that doesn't seem to be how Luther thought about it. And so he is saying that... And I suppose, you know, what the professor might mean is in our context, right? where both kinds is the norm, um, we're not at a transition point uh -huh. that taking only one kind could be seen as a, uh, a denial or as inconsistent with the institution of Christ since both kinds are made available. Um, and that is where we have to remind ourselves how different this is from what Luther's talking about um, both kinds being offered was um, in many to go up for a peasant at this time to go up to the altar to receive the body and blood of Christ that only the priest had received before could be an extremely terrifying thing. Yeah, and I the, the context of that was somebody got skipped over on accident and didn't get the the wine and the blood, and he kind of left the impression you didn't get that was not a sacrament for that person. I was a little uncomfortable, but I think the guy was probably put on the spot and then thought that through. Anyway, Luther, the point I'm trying to make is that with, with uh, communion of both kinds, it's not an extended forever thing that is an open question, neither commanded nor for, forbidden, an adiaphron. But we're going to be very patient with the people, right? But things like clerical celibacy, um, if that's your, if that, if that's your thing, and you're going to make a vow, I would really would not, you know, suggest making the vow because then you're going to break it if you fall in love. Um, but it's something that I can't say is wrong, right? So those kind of things. And I think the main thrust, however, is freedom, right? Um, we don't want to do exactly what we hated. Don't demand something or demand that you can't do something. And so he rightly sees something at the heart of Karl Stott's maybe radical reformation is not the right word, but uh, going a little bit too far on things um, and being a little bit more radical in the sense of let's get everybody worked up here. Let's do this. Let's the time is now. Um, it, it's not it's not very pastoral. And Karl Stott really doesn't understand uh, freedom. And maybe one more thing, too, with Karl Stott. And this is probably maybe an influence also from the Zwickau prophets is kind of claiming Wittenberg as a, a Christian city. If we can get rid of 
the brothels, if we can get rid of the uh, abuse in the church, then this will truly be a Christian city. And that's what the Swiss are going to do, yeah. And and Luther's like, okay, good luck with getting sin out, first of all, but um, a Christian city is not defined by its morality, right? It's going to be defined by the gospel. And that, for Luther and for us, is such a huge deal. It's a main theological point that cannot be compromised. So we may look at and Luther and say, okay, Luther is a little bit more conservative. You want to go slower, understood Frederick's concerns, and Karl Stott was a little radical. It's just a matter of pace. Not really. It's a matter of freedom, and it's a matter of what predominates the gospel or some sort of piety that we can claim um, we can claim that we are a Christian city now, as opposed when before there was no Christians there because yeah, they were bad. And I mean, if you read Luther's sermons or you read his letters, he is going to want the brothels closed, and he would like the taverns closed during church. That comes up a lot too. Uh, but it, as you're pointing out, Mike, and I think well, he doesn't see that as what it um, what that is is an outflow of um, right. He sees those as societal ills. Mm-hmm. These are things. Um, and it's just not good to have drunk people showing up to the the worship service, right? Um, but he doesn't see it as a mark of the church in the way that uh, Karlstadt and the Swiss will will see it. Yeah, mark what the the marks of the church are interesting. I wonder if we maybe That'd be a good do, episode. Yeah, like so. It, it's kind of funny when you think of okay. I'm, I'm going to write that on the chalkboard. While I'm, you're talking. I'm a good Lutheran boy, and so the marks of the church are going to be baptism, holy communion, absolution, the Word of God. Period. Right. This is where the means of grace are. But but Luther puts in there suffering. Right. The cross. And you know what he would not put is a certain level of morality. Right. And so uh, where Karl Stott may say. I see the church in Wittenberg because we have made moral progress. Luther's more apt to say, I see the church because there's a cross. There is suffering that is here. Uh, maybe one Did I do well on this, Mike? This Very is the good. first time I got to write on the chalkboard. Usually Mike does. I tried to write like your handwriting even. Yeah, it is sloppy like mine. But Very it's good. all caps. And, and all capitals. Yeah, okay. um, I, the other thing we should maybe mention is the iconoclasm. And so uh, taking statues and since the saint... The statues of saints, since the saints didn't do anything for our salvation, let's cut off their hands, right? And so you have these, or we'll break images, or we're going to uh, take the vestments of the, the fancy church. And, and you can understand why the priests are like, hold on, you're messing, you're messing with my stuff here. You're messing with my livelihood. Um, you're, you're literally messing with my possessions, right? And again, we see, okay, Carl Stott went too far, blah, blah. But Underneath it all, there is something. Uh, Karl Stott points to uh, the prohibition against uh, against images in the Old Testament, not really having the theological nuance to say it's not really about images; it's about how we image God, um, and not really having the nuance too of the incarnation. God becomes physical; he becomes uh, human for our sake. Images aren't the problem. We're the problem, right? And there's just a little bit of a whiff of latent Gnosticism in all of this that if we get rid of all the institutional church, the physical stuff, the images and all that, all this worldly stuff, then we're just left with the soul and the soul is pure, right? It, it, almost, it almost smells like the soul is sinless and the body is sinful. And the problem is just that we have the body in the physical world. And that really doesn't understand the creation 
of God that it is good. He says it quite a few times, obviously, that he became the creation, that beauty and art and images are good. And, and so you already see the beginnings of a split between what we're going to know as a radical reformation or more Protestant reformation versus kind of a conservative Lutheran reformation. And it's not just about style. It's about content and very, in particular, Christological content that God becomes man. And I think you're going to see that more in the older Luther as he develops, too. You know, one of the things with the early Luther is that a lot of the stuff with Karlstadt at this point, he's even willing to say, you know, I kind of uh, agree some eventually it should go this way. Um, You know, he says of images, for instance, at this point, I'm not a fan of images myself, but it's not the time to be destroying them. And I think the older Luther, as he has to have Christological battles, um, because he realizes that most of the doctrinal fights that come up have uh, Christological implications. I mean, this is where his reply to Zwingli is so important as he um, unpacks the implications of a receptionist or a, a um, representationalist view of the Lord's Supper. Um, I think so also with images we'll see um, that really not getting why images can be helpful is dangerous when it comes to the incarnation because yes in the old testament there was prescriptions against uh images but god does have a face now and it's a god who's for me and so even if the the face on the image of jesus i don't care if you have korean jesus german jesus african jesus um he is a jesus who is for me who did become man uh i think we'll see luther mature on that as well um, Mike, you mentioned a, a number of things that he hits on there. Um, maybe if we just take fasting really quick to unpack that, I think we should do a little more on two kinds in here too, uh, in the Lord's Supper. Um, but you know, fasting is something that obviously Luther, Luther doesn't see as bad. Um, the small catechism when it comes to the Lord's Supper, uh, says fasting can be helpful and beneficial. Um, but it's going to remain for Luther. Well, it, but it ought to not be coerced. I mean, it ought not be something that is um, viewed as a metric for your relationship with God. That's probably the easiest one to understand out of all of them that Luther addresses here. Uh, Vows and celibacy are going to be difficult. Um, Luther, at this point, I think we both agree from our discussion before, Mike, you know, still sees himself as a monk. Mm -hmm. Um, Depictions of him, especially Chronic's favorite, uh, famous depiction of him from this time. Uh, Luther is in a monk's cowl. Um, His life is still very monastic. Uh, he personally, it seems to be, and you can correct me if you if your take is different than mine, Mike, seems to be uncomfortable with the notion of, of marriage um, for him as a monk. Uh, and probably while he um, will say, if, if conscience leads one there um, for a priest or a monk or a nun to marry, um, then it makes sense. Uh, he's not, you know, personally completely on board with that it's I, he's wrestling with it maybe mm-hmm. is the best way mm-hmm. to say it um so he doesn't think celibacy should be coerced but he's not necessarily calling for this did, tidal wave of monks and um nuns and priests to get married um we'll see him uh grow in his position on on that or at least grow in clarity on it um we talked about his development on images uh, but maybe if we, 
I'll I'll give my impression, and then maybe Mike, you can react and build on it. Communion in two kinds. I already hit on how terrifying this would have been for the average, um, the average Christian at this is that this point in time. Yeah, there's a story in the in the December uh, Evangelical Mass by Carl Stott that I think two wafers fell to the ground and nobody would pick it up except Carl Stott. Yeah, and and this is what I want to bring out a little bit. I mean, still today in the Roman Catholic Church, there's lots of masses celebrated where the the blood of Christ is only made available to the priest. Um, when I grew up, my experience in the Catholic Church was um, you would have um, the Eucharistic ministers who gave out the body of our Lord, um, but then you would also have those at certain masses, um, high masses especially, where the blood of our Lord would be available. And I say body and blood of our Lord because as Lutherans, we do believe that the Roman Catholic Church has the body and blood of our Lord in the Lord's Supper if they're consecrating things right according to the Lord's institution. Um, but a lot of people would pass by that station. It wasn't an expectation that you would take both. At this point in Catholicism, these people had never received the blood of their Lord in the Lord's Supper. Um, this was something that for a variety of theological reasons was reserved for the priest or for the celebrant, maybe would be a better way to put it. Um, and this was something that was viewed as holy, you didn't want to get your beard in it. You didn't want it to hit the ground. Think of Luther's first mass. We've talked about his nervousness about spilling the cup. And later in life, is when he spills. As later, an adult, yeah, he spills and he gets down, I believe, on all fours and, and licks it up. Um, out of respect for the, the elements there, the consecrated elements, this would not be, think of a, and maybe a good parallel as if we think of dietary laws and early Christians, the tensions between Christian, a Jew and Gentile, about what they could eat in the book of Acts and uh, Paul's rebuke of Peter when uh, he some from the Judaizers come and he withdraws from the Gentiles. This would be a big change in the church, the ecclesiastical experience of a lay person at this time. And to coerce someone to that would turn that not into a gospel moment for that person, <clears throat> but actually into one of the most terrifying law moments. Um, they would be approaching the supper, not in the fear of God as in belief or faith, um, but many of them in ab abject terror of messing up or if they should be. This is, once again, not everybody theologically is apace with, with Luther and the intellectuals at this time. And so you're, you're really turning, It's it would be theologically as problematic as withholding the cup was um, because you're turning the supper into something it was not intended to be for that person whose conscience has not caught up yet and um, and whose only life that they have known has been not receiving uh, that element in the Lord's Supper. And Maybe correct me, Mike, if you want there, build on that, take it where you want. But I think that's something our listeners should understand. Yeah, and a pastoral lesson for us all, too, you know, that I didn't always listen to, although I, I tried to, was you got to go slow, you know. And and you, you, you do have to get your people to say, okay, this is freedom. For instance, we're going to institute every, um, uh, we're going to institute private confession. Um, I don't expect you to come. That's not your piety. Uh, we have communion every Sunday now. Um, I understand that, you know, your piety is to go every month. That's fine. And I'm not going to force you into that. Step one is to say, it's okay if somebody else is do it. I don't have a right to demand that they don't do it. 
And then the next step, of course, which may never be realized in someone's lifetime, is that they then participate in whatever change there's going to be. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, in Acts and then, of course, uh, in Galatians a little bit, too, we see this being played out on, on the pages of Scripture, right? Um, it's not it's not right for you, Peter, to live like a Gentile and demand that other Gentiles live like Jews, right? That's not, that's not right for you. You're in the right place, and I understand that you're trying to soothe the consciences of the little old Jewish grandma who just cannot believe that uh, we're going to let Gentiles eat pork, right? Um, you got to get that person to the step where they say this is freedom. But you should not expect that a group of people that thought that eating pork was like us eating horse, you're not going to expect them to all of a sudden start having bacon, right? So you need to, you need to be patient that way. And I think Luther then has that fine line between Karl Stott and, um, you know, and, and maybe even on the other side, uh, 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 in some cases, Frederick the wise, right. And, and he is being pastoral here, where perhaps Karl Stott is being a little bit more of a revolutionary. And here we see what what Luther means when he talks about the importance of the conscience um, and of consolation for people. This is not the importance of the conscience as we maybe think of it in the contemporary American uh, setting of, well, my conscience is just free to do whatever it wants or be whatever it wants. But the importance of a conscience rightly formed by, by the word of God. And so what Luther is dealing with here is, is weak brothers and sisters, which simply means um, that their conscience needs to be better formed by the word of God. But the way to do that is through teaching and through preaching, not through coercion. Um, and so I think the, the New Testament parallel parallels here are striking for instance the food sacrificed um, to idols and Paul will tell the Corinthians well if it doesn't bother your conscience an idol is nothing then um, because that's what was sold in the butcher shop basically then go and eat meat but if your conscience is bothered well then hold off for now but both of you don't pass judgment on the other for this Um, so it's not that Luther is making conscience preeminent over the word of God but he's recognizing that it's the word of God alone that will take conscience captive, um, not force. Yeah. You got anything else or should we, we're at about time. Do you want to? I think that hits on the main points yeah. of the Invocavit sermons. I would just reiterate um, this moment is important in Luther's life and in his time and in Wittenberg because it will chart the course for the Lutheran Reformation as a conservative. If you go to a Lutheran church in Germany today, um, what it looks like, its connections with the past, what the divine service looks like, a lot of that is really going to be shaped by the approach that Luther takes in this moment. Um, if you were to go to a Lutheran church in, in Germany um, and then go to, for instance, say a Reformed church in Zurich, um, they're going to look very different. Um, their services will look very different, and a lot of it will come down to this moment. Yeah, absolutely. So when we get back next time, uh, the rest of 1522 and 1523 are not big moment days like our years like 1520 and 1521 or later 1524 and 1525. Um, so we'll probably just kind of touch maybe on 
uh, a gap between that and the Peasants' War. There's things going on. There's some more Karlstadt issues. We have a couple new popes that are going to um, rise to the, to the throne in Rome. Um, we're going to start to start to hear about this guy named Erasmus as well a little bit more. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure how the next episode will go, but we'll probably keep historically, uh, chronologically going forward. And uh, hopefully you'll join us next time and we'll, we'll keep plugging along. Until then, let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. One more round won't get me down. I said, honey, honey, I don't care.